happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 172 for Wednesday, April the 8th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you from Oklahoma City and the command center, as it were, for remote learning for me as we're in our second full week. And I am continuing to teach fifth and sixth graders computer class at the Cassidy School. And I'm also the technology integration and innovation specialist, um, which has meant that I've uh, had a, some good roles to play with our remote learning support team the past few weeks. And joining me as always from Missoula, Montana, where the weather is always different than it is in Oklahoma, where it was 91 degrees today, is Dr. Jason Neifer, guru of all distance learning, online learning, and remote learning. Well, good evening, uh, Wes, and I'm a guru of something. I'm not sure kind of every which way. Right now, I'm trying to be the guru figuring out what day of the week it is. But indeed, I am joining you from Missoula, Montana tonight, where it is a balmy 51 degrees outside. And tomorrow night, it's supposed to be 71 degrees in the evening. So we're looking forward to that just in time for the long weekend. Um, but uh, I am joining you from Missoula, Montana, where I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And we just found out yesterday that uh, Montana is going to shelter in place for two more weeks. So we our shelter order was supposed to end tomorrow. I'm sorry, Friday. And then Governor Bullock announced it's going to be two more weeks. And they're starting to become some pretty um, serious and, and and prolific conversations about maybe closing schools for the rest of the year in Montana. So uh, I don't know what that looks like. I know the Washington's closed schools, Kansas has closed schools, Michigan has closed schools, um, but that kind of means something different depending on what it looks like. So some schools just are done for the year. Others um, will continue on with some form of distance um, and uh, distance learning, whether it's, it's digital learning or something a little more analog. But um, obviously, still living in very interesting times. And I know that, uh, Wes, we have a lot of links tonight. Uh, a lot of them obviously are dominated by the coronavirus story, in part because it's kind of sucked the air out of all other technology stories. Um, but uh, where would people find links if they want to go back and check out the articles that we're talking about tonight? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, they can go to edtechsr.com links, and you will have a link to a Google Drive, or sorry, a Google document, which has all the links since episode number one. says that schools indeed are closed for the rest of the year in Arizona. So there you go. Um, lots of different, uh, you know, different different options that schools are taking and uh i've just i'm pulling up a couple articles here this is kansas city star march 19th state officials tell closed kansas schools to teach online use other options so um interesting school districts should continue to teach students for the rest of the academic year but it's up to them to come up with their own plans about how to carry that out a state task force announced thursday um some of the announcements it had sounded like they were just going to yeah they were just going to close but anyway the, the task force was asked to come up with flexible guidelines and they said figure it out yourself <laughs> well and I think we talked about this uh well uh, the last uh, couple weeks in regards to the kind of broader movement towards remote teaching whether that looks like for your district but one of the things that i i would say is is a discussion we need to start having probably sooner rather than later, but certainly part of the, you know, uh, postmortem of the event is that, well, I, I like to think about this in terms of, um, you know, medical professionals, doctors, and, and all the many professional staff that go into keeping us healthy oftentimes will uh, look at situations, whether they went uh, well or poorly, and it, and uh, it's sometimes called a, morbi or, uh, a mortidity, mor morbidity and mortality conference where they will go through and talk about what happened when things went right and wrong. And I think that's something we need to be thinking about a lot in education. I know there's been a ton of Twitter traffic. I, unfortunately, it, it's felt like in the last week or so that, uh, you know, 
people are turning against each other a little bit. The, the arguments are getting a little, little more terse, uh, as opposed to a couple weeks ago where it would seem to dominate it by people that were trying to be helpful and share resources. Um, I guess the one thing I would say is that it's just so important for us as, as a broad education profession, no matter what corner of the education world you're in, whether it's K-12 or higher ed or your private or your public, that, you know, we have to really be on each other's team right now to get through the, the broader crisis that, that, that our, our country and really humanity is going through right now. But let's not deny that there's an opportunity for us after this is all over with to sit down and have some conversations about what went right what went wrong and what we can do and invest in to perhaps do this in a different way in the future. And so let's not lose that opportunity and also start to keep track of, you know, when we're noticing things that are trends in, in either direction, something that's going right or something that's going wrong, let's note that and use that a little bit down the road. As an example of that, I know from talking to friends in school districts, uh, talking with colleagues of mine in my program, State Virtual School in Montana, that, you know, some districts were very well prepared because they had professionally developed their teachers in a way that the technology was really easy, even if they weren't using it in, in a distance learning environment, um, where others may have underinvested in professional development and professional learning for their teachers. But something to keep in mind as we kind of go along during this time. So, Wes, I know there are a lot of links this week and a lot of interesting things to talk about. Where would you like to start this week? Well, actually, uh, I'd like to take a moment of personal privilege, and I want to ask to crowdsource a couple of things with you. Uh, normally, for those of you familiar with the show, and hello to all five of our live viewers. Woo we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna bust bust out today. Um, uh, we do have a chat room, and we encourage you, whether you're tuning in from Facebook or from YouTube, to let us know you're there and um, and, and chime in with questions, links, etc. <clears throat> There's two things that I really want to. Uh, crowdsource with Jason and then see what others are going to maybe contribute during the show and then afterwards. The first is tools for live synchronous teaching. Um, you know, so schools are in all kinds of different situations with respect to the access that students have or don't have with devices. Uh, we have we have no idea for sure how long this is going to go on. Um, for the first time, uh, you know, I've I've heard I've heard some reports where people are talking about you know, the possibility of this going on for longer than a year. Um, what I what I will say quickly is that what we need to do in order for us to not have to shelter at home is to, number one, uh, be able to have a vaccine, which which they say we're, you know, probably 12 to 18 months away from. But we also are going to need to have enough test kits so that we can test everyone who is symptomatic, and then we'll be able to have officials track down how that person acquired uh, COVID-19 and we, we're a long way from, from being able to do this. So, um, anyway, I, so there's two things I want to, want to, I want to let you, I want to say the things I'm aware of that are really good for synchronous live teaching when you want to try to make things as interactive as possible with students. And the other thing I want to crowdsource is, uh, software tools for creating virtual backgrounds. Uh, that's one of the, the cool things about Zoom. It has built in, you know, uh, put yourself at Rivendell or, you know, in front of Minas Tirith as Gandalf's riding his white horse across the plains or whatever. I've, I've, I've done that recently. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to kind of crowdsource that. So I put into the chat, uh, Desmos, which is actually a tool for, um, you know, mainly teaching math, but, uh, it can be used for other things. And, and this past, I guess, uh, July when I was at the, um, uh, the uh, Summer Institute for Digital Literacy, uh, Dave Quinn, who is EduQuinn on Twitter, had a great session he taught, and he used that as a way of getting live synchronous feedback. You know, kids can not only respond to remote to multiple choice, but they can draw things. There's a lot of different response options. So I put Desmos, I put Nearpod, uh, which a lot of tools like today, you know, is offered a, a free through the end of the year full feature, you know, deal. Uh, Jamboard is a collaborative board that you can have as part of G Suite. And then Poll Everywhere uh, is a tool that you can, you know, use to insert on your slides and then on a different mobile device, really anything, either the app or, you know, just a browser um, folks can respond. I've used that quite a bit, you know, doing conference keynotes and workshops and things like that. So I will throw that to you, Dr. Neifer. What would be some of your favorite tools when it comes to live synchronous teaching when you want to 
have things interactive, get feedback from students, uh, not just be, you know, strictly delivering ideas and information, but really, you know, doing things interactively. Sure. The the two things I would add to that is that um, and and one of these tools I would say is it's, it's not quite overdone. It's just that it's it's so popular that you may want to consider the other one I'm going to suggest today. But first, um, uh, Kahoot, which is probably the original, very popular uh, tool for creating um, uh, kind of interactive games with students. And it works really well um, inside the kind of uh, 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 interactive environment that um uh, we, that you may be remote right now, right? So that's something to keep in mind. But Kahoot basically allows you to create a game. It's painfully easy to do it. It's not uh, uh, very challenging at all to create a Kahoot game. And it'd be something that you could start off in a Microsoft Teams room, a Google Classroom, Google Chat room, Google Video Conference, a Zoom, a WebEx, and then have your students kind of uh, uh, compete against one another in their remote location. And it is something I've always thought to be very interesting is that it, my understanding is it does a pretty good job of checking for different kinds of devices to make sure there's no advantage uh, to a student that may have a faster device or faster internet. I read that. I was going to uh, actually look up that article a couple weeks ago because someone had asked me about that before this whole public health thing started. And but it's apparently does a pretty good job of of uh, um, uh, uh, dealing with that. And then one that's not as well known, which is why I would maybe suggest doing it, is called quizzes. Uh, I don't really know how to pronounce it. It's Q U I Z I Z Z. So quizzes is is. Um, which is also an interactive game uh, as well. It's it's really well done. It's a, a very much a um, what I would describe as as a maybe one step more advanced than a Kahoot. But again, very flashy graphics, easy to create quizzes, and would allow you to do kind of a game like atmosphere. And I know that a lot of teachers that are engaged in remote teaching are. Um, right now, been told to keep things kind of light, right? In fact, that would be my best advice, really, for those that are doing this for the first time. It is so easy to create an overwhelming amount of work in the online environment, uh, partly because that you know you may not realize that 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 some factors really do uh, change how one student engages with content as opposed to another. And I know that's my experience uh, with first time online teachers. I've heard a lot from, from my teachers in Montana, they're working with colleagues that, you know, it's not because they're seeking to punish or anything. It's just that it's really easy to create a bit of an overwhelming amount of work um, when you're first doing kind of digital remote slash distance learning teaching. So those would be my two uh, recommended tools for trying out to add a little levity to the remote teaching environment. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, my recommendation would be to definitely lean into the asynchronous and to uh, use your live opportunities to really check in. Let's let students be interactive. One of the things I've shared with uh, our teachers as well as our staff is that I think if we're doing an interactive video conference and everyone doesn't get to participate at least a little bit, it's a fail because why wasn't that just a video, right? If people are just, you know, watching that, not interacting. And so I think it's really important to use that interactive Time to interact. Um, however, I do know that there are a number of schools um, where synchronous teaching is being pushed, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm think I won't name names, but I'm thinking of of a school um, that was really that, that's just been really behind with learning management systems. You know, that hasn't been using a platform like even Google Classroom or Seesaw or Canvas or something like that, and so. In some cases, and I, I have no statistics on how widespread this is, uh, I think that, it, you know, if the teachers and the students have connectivity, which is certainly not the case for everybody, but if that would be the case, you know, saying, hey, teach live might seem to be less of an adjustment. Now, I honestly think that you want to be redesigning your lessons and not just, you know, sort of standing up and, and delivering for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, I feel very guilty, you know, sharing this because when I was the, the director of distance learning for five years at the College of Education at Texas Tech, I literally recruited faculty saying, you won't have to change a thing. You can just come up to this Elmo document camera with your transparencies and put a white piece of paper behind it. And here you go. And so, you know, as we entice teachers or tried to entice faculty to to teach online, we certainly were. A try, you know, looking at accommodating ways that they have traditionally taught and presented information. But um, the one that I also put in here, and I'm actually going to spin up a, a new synchronous teaching 
page on our support instructional support site. I've, I mentioned that before on the show, but it's uh, just a Google site we're building out at support.casty.org. And uh, I have helped several of our faculty, especially math faculty, we're using primarily Macs, uh, connect their iPads with a cable, so just the charging cable, and then use QuickTime Pro to open up the iPad as their movie source. Then they've got their iPad right there, and then they're able to write and do whatever they want. And a lot of them are using Explain Everything, which you can record tool. all kinds of stuff with, but it's a, <coughs> pardon me, it's a very flexible whiteboard tool uh, that basically gives you an infinite canvas and you can just go to another slide. And so we have a number of especially math faculty at our middle and high school levels that are doing that. So Peggy is echoing her love for quizzes or however you say that. So we've got uh, the approval of, of Peggy George. So it, it definitely is it's legit. What about uh, virtual webcams? I just simply Googled this a little bit and came up with several expensive options. Uh, cam mask at $34, mini cam at $29 per year for the basic version. Chroma cam, which is only available on Windows, but it is free. And then you mentioned XSplit vCam, but I think that, is that Windows only as well? It is Windows only, and it's not really working for me right now. So um, in fact, I'm gonna um, turn my camera off for just a second and continue to talk in hopes that um, perhaps this will start working. But um, yeah, and this one happens to be, it's not, it's not free right now, but it is, uh, it is, it's substantially discounted. It's, it's usually a yearly cost, but you can go to Stack Social right now and get it for $19.95. And what I like about, um, XSplit VCAM, which is kind of a mouthful to say, is that, um, it is, um, um, it allows you to broadcast a live YouTube video behind you. So what I like about that notion is that I can, in essence, um, uh, put like a virtual fireplace or a beach scene, or if I could get this to work, I would show you what this was. But um, it's a pretty pretty sweet thing. And I know you had mentioned when we were talking before the um, um, before the show started that um, their uh, Zoom has a built-in ability to take an image and put it in the background. You don't even have a have a green screen. It's basically a virtual green screen. Um, but this allows you to do YouTube videos. So it's unfortunate I'm probably not going to get this to work today because um, um, uh, uh, I am not getting it to work. But it's still pretty sweet. So, and you know, I have to say, like, uh, I, I would guess that a more tech-savvy crowd tends to listen to our podcast. This is the kind of stuff, and this has really been a, a strategy of mine for, for really 25 years in the classroom, is that when you could do little nerdy things to kind of keep things light and add a little levity to your presentation, it's kind of got a, a teach like a pirate vibe to it a little bit because you're adding a little bit of something-something to this. Um, I think that's great. And, you know, your personality, this is, this is one of the hardest parts about teaching in a remote area. If you're, if you're used to being charming inside the classroom, which certainly was the case with me when I was a, a, a high school history teacher, charm was a big part of, of my shtick. I like to tell jokes. I like to be funny. I like to dress up in a togo when we're talking about philosophers, like those sorts of things. Um, I, we had a, a modern European philosophy day when I taught AP European history where I wore a beret and thick, uh, poetry glasses, as I called them, uh, because that's the kind of stuff that, you know, the kids were entertained by. You should keep that up and use as many little, you know, tech tricks as you can to kind of keep things interesting. Um, I know I've seen at least hundreds of references to when your cat jumps into the picture or everyone's introducing their pet as part of the, the, the class that day. And, you know, it's really important um, obviously to try to keep continuity of delivery instruction, but it's as and maybe even more important during these times to to stay humanly connected. And if part of your human connection was to add a little bit of a shtick to 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 be human with your students, I think now more than ever is the time to do that. So don't be afraid to use things like backgrounds and funny things. And um, in fact, today I heard kind of a funny one and I tried it out. and It was, it was pretty entertaining. Um, uh, if you're on a video conference with a colleague, if they happen to leave the chair for a minute, grab a screenshot of what their background looks like, right, or what their home looks like with them not sitting there, and then make that your background in Zoom so it kind of looks like you're sitting in their house. I did that to my friend Mike today, and it was pretty funny. Um, but, you know, be silly, and I think that's that's something that your kids will both appreciate 
And also, because of how serious these times are, it gives us an opportunity to you know, show a little bit of the humanity of the situation. Awesome. Peggy is also uh, suggesting one that I, uh, and I'll try to put this on my list yet, but I was, saying, I, I was trying to put it into chat. It's hard to type and think and put stuff online. Uh, Ecamm Live, um, that has a free trial. And I, yeah, that's, I think that's one that I've, I've played with before. So wisdom, folks, wisdom. You paid big bucks to get this tonight or whenever you're listening to the show. And there you heard it from, from Dr. Neifer, online and distance learning guru <clears throat> of uh, the greater, you know, basically north of the Mason-Dixon line. I think we've given you all of the states north of, uh, of essentially the Kansas-Oklahoma border. So Sure, there you go. I'm even giving you Kansas. So uh, this is interesting. I um, So the, another article about the closures there, this was from March 19th, so this is almost a, a month old or three weeks old. Uh, this was from the Lawrence Journal World. Actually, this is April 8th. Kansas Task Force issued guidelines for K-12 remote education plans. Stresses learning won't stop with building closures is the headline. And then it says Kansas students will continue to keep doing schoolwork, perhaps up to three hours of remote learning per day for older students. And, you know, I'm going to say that that's some good advice to think about the amount of time that you're wanting students to work. We have talked about that at our school in, in different contexts because, you know, I just know as a computer teacher, well, I know this also as some as a, as a tech director for the last four years, you know, troubleshooting stuff. It is it is easy, I think. It, maybe it depends on your personality. Some people may just give up more quickly. But I have found over the course of my career, you know, I need to be able to say stop, time out. How much time have I spent on this? And I think when we're doing remote learning with students, it's really important to say this assignment should take you about 30 minutes or about 60 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. And if you're spending twice that amount of time or whatever, you can decide the threshold, you know, students need to stop. One of the things my wife mentioned today, uh, as we're having opportunities to take walks and, you know, do other things because, Hey, we're sheltering at home, sheltering in place here. Um, you know, is that it's so important for us to be intentional about helping students acquire skills for success when it comes to this online environment in terms of taking charge of their own learning, setting up their schedules. And a big part of that is, you know, how much time are you are you spending adequate time, you know, on each class and each assignment, but not spending an inordinate amount of time. In other words, a recipe for frustration is is both teachers and students not attending to the time factor, and you thought you were giving your students 30 minutes of work and somebody spent two hours on it, you know, that can that can be really problematic, especially if that's multiplied across multiple classes, multiple courses, etc. So that is good. If you have any other suggestions for synchronous teaching tools or strategies, uh, Nearpod is one that I put on there. I haven't, it's been a, a while since I've used Nearpod. When I was teaching STEM, uh, fourth and fifth grade STEM in Yukon 2013 to 2015, we were playing with that. And that, it's also that we were using iPads for that and everybody in my room had an iPad. And so that was the kind of thing where you could push a presentation. You could ask some polling questions. I haven't used that in five years. I know that the platform has continued to, to move on. Uh, instructionally, you know, those tools are in a different place than, you know, when you're designing for an asynchronous kind of environment, you're, you know, going to deliver some instruction, perhaps through a video and with text and some other things. And then you're going to ask students to go, you know, do things. Um, I will add, and this is just a little related, then we can get to some, some articles too. Man, one of the most important things, and I worked with one of our teachers today who had not done this, is to know that you're your platform for learning management, like Google Classroom, as well as Seesaw, which those are the two primary ones we're using, they give an opportunity for students to open up a file as a template and then start to modify it. And so that is a that's really a basic thing that everybody, I think, needs to needs to be utilizing because at a very basic, you know, kind of accommodation uh, level of tech integration taking something we've all done before, like passing out a piece of paper to students that already has some things filled, you know, written on it, and then asking them to, to fill in additional details, turn that back. I mean, that's, that's at a very basic level. That's, but, you know, we've got a lot of teachers in my experience right now who are being, 
who have been thrown literally into the deep end of, of, uh, of online learning, distance learning, and, and technology enhanced learning. And we shouldn't make assumptions. We need to, to check where people are at with, with their experience levels. And uh, what I've also just noticed is it's far easier to make something more complex than it is to make it a little simpler and to, uh, you know, try and, and break things down for folks. So thank you for indulging me, Dr. Neifer, in that rabbit hole. Where would you like to go for other articles tonight? Well, I, I, got, I think we got to talk about Zoom. Um, so full disclosure, I like the Zoom platform. Uh, it is the, the corporate video conferencing tool for the University of Montana, and it's something that they've been using for, I think, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years. And I, I want to, before we get into these articles, I want to be super clear that there is a big difference between corporate Zoom, right, Zoom that big institutions license for relatively inexpensively um, uh, per license and deliver to you know campus wide, right? So uh, thousands of, of of users of the University of Montana. Um, the we were told a couple weeks ago that when University of Montana moved to uh, remote teaching as part of its strategy to deal with COVID nineteen, uh, their use increased like twenty nine x. Uh, as part of uh, their their license, but there's been an extraordinary amount of um, uh, media around the Zoom platform, and probably for me, the apex came this past weekend when New York City Public Schools announced that they were uh, moving away from Zoom and asking teachers to move to either Google Meet, which is the video uh, video conferencing solution for Google, or Microsoft Teams, which is the integrated uh, a thing in Office 365, and I I have to say that there are so many different stories here that it's hard to keep track of what's going on. But part of this is that the private version, uh, I'm not sorry, private, the free version of Zoom that individuals can just sign up for and use. It's what you may have been using if you've been doing um, virtual cocktail parties or meeting with your family. Um, I had dinner with my sister and her family a couple weeks ago when this all started and it was quite lovely, but I think we used the free version of Zoom for that. That. Um, that version not only was advertising driven because it's a free service and, and utilized advertising hooks, including a Facebook hook uh, on the iOS app. But secondarily, um, it, it doesn't have the features of the enterprise version. And you can do things like you're, you have a lot less opportunities to lock things down. But there's been a number of articles. I think we had mentioned one last week, but only briefly, that the FBI had warned of a phenomenon called Zoom bombing which is what happens if there are software you can download from the dark web that will literally do something called war dialing. And you have to kind of be a nerd to know the term war dialing. Um, but it goes back to um, a 1980s movie called uh, War Games starring Matthew Broderick. But as part of like really old school nerdum, Matthew Broderick uh, is trying to find a company that has a game he wants to play. And so he war dials, which means going to area code, uh, uh, exchange, four digit number, zero, zero, zero. And then the next one, zero, 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 one, you dial hundreds, if not thousands of numbers. And then you get a list of everything that is a, a dial up modem. Well, what Zoom bombing is or, or Zoom war dialing is that basically what's happening is that people have created scripts that go and use the nine digit numbers that Zoom has been, um, um, Zoom has been or uses to get in. And if you didn't lock it down, people could literally jump into your classroom um, or jump into your meeting. There have been instances of people going on uh, racist tirades. There have been instances of people showing pornography, um, uh, otherwise uh, engaging in, in, in lewd behavior. And if you didn't lock down your room, right, you will, could be a victim of Zoom bombing. And I have to say, one of my problems with the story is, is that it does acknowledge that depending how you set up the tool, almost all video conferencing tools that are utilized, some kind of URL and a number can be bombed, right? It's not Zoom bombed if you're in Microsoft Teams, your team's bombed then, right? But if you're posting a link to a meeting that's not locked down to the users that you utilize it in, if you post it on Twitter or Facebook, people can jump into your meeting, sir. Google Hangout Meets, and they've made some great changes just in the last few weeks. They have. But if someone is not part of your domain, then the organizer, the creator of that conference, has to allow them in. So we've uh, utilized that in some cases with parents 
And as long as you invite them in the calendar, the, the link is open. People can come in and join. Right. But to the credit of the wonderful folks at Google, who admittedly I think are fantastic, uh, you know, that's a safety feature. So you're not password protecting. Come on. Moose is going to join us. You're not going to, you don't have to password protect your conference, uh, but you have that feature that protects if you're not part of the domain. Basically, folks that have a, an email address for your school organization are whitelisted and they can just immediately join. But anybody who's outside of that has to have approval. But, um, and, and I would also say Zoom has made a change since these headlines hit where now every conference, even on the free platform are automatically password protected. So they have made some adjustments. Right. Well, and then, so the other articles I wanted to share regarding this is that I think zoom has been an interesting study in organizational change in the last couple of weeks, because um, not only do they, do they institute a lot of changes kind of on the fly, for example, in my, my account now used to be that anyone could share a screen and now you have to tell someone or give someone permission to share a switch puppy. Um, to share a screen and uh, that's changed, which meant that if I'm the organizer of a meeting, um, I know no, I now have to give the permission to someone um, uh, inside of, of, of the meeting to be able to do that. And if you start to look at it, Zoom is really evolving very quickly, kind of on the fly. And in fact, today, the article from today was that the, the Zoom CEO broadcast live, I think via a Zoom channel today. And um uh, uh, said that, you know, we apologize for these, these issues. Uh, we weren't prepared for the, you know, uh, uh, many times over increase in the use of our product, both the paid version and the free version. Trust us when we say we've heard your criticisms and we will do better. For example, that's the change rolled out today. Zoom is no longer broadcasting the ID number in, uh, the, the bar of the, uh, window that you're using Zoom in or the app. Which means that what was happening was that, and I think that literally uh, there was a picture of a, a cabinet, something or another in Great Britain that showed the number. It was a secured room, but people were trying to get into the room because it was uh, the number was was showing. Um, and uh, someone was trying to zoom bomb uh, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson in um, in, in in the UK. Um, and they've changed that, so it's no longer showing that. If you try to share a picture, you take a picture with your cell phone or something. And then also, um, uh, the setup now, the, the standard setup is much, much tighter than it was before, and they're just assuming you want a secure setup as opposed to being more loose. And so I guess I would say the caution that the situation has meant extraordinary changes in regards to tech. But let's make sure we're working with tech companies to say that, you know, I think Zoom made some mistakes here, but I think they're working extremely hard. In the same way, I think Google responded to so many criticisms, too, because Meet was um, allowing people to kick other kids out, change each other's names and and give more control than you needed to. And they've evolved very quickly, rolled out new versions much faster than they would otherwise. Let's let's have some patience for tech companies as they figure out how to navigate these troubled waters. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the, the things that's just happened in the last week for Hangout Meets is, uh, and Eric Kurtz, I guess, do I have this link for him? Um, they have just, uh, they, they, they now, uh, they now allow the, uh, teachers basically, I think, to, to gatekeep, yeah, to keep, keep students from rejoining or from joining a meet without you. Um, so I'll put yeah. this, this one in, but this is April 7th. This is, yep. this is a new feature. Um, schools, you know, previously, whenever you made it, make it, made a hangout, uh, it was just a live link. And then so anybody who had it, it was part of your domain, you know, could, could just use it and could rejoin. Uh, so Google has changed that. It does require some changes that you make in your admin console. Um, and so they're, they're, they've been rolling that out, but yeah, it's, I mean, we do need to have patience. On the other hand, you know, it's there's a balance here between, hey, this is a pandemic. Hey, this is a crisis. Hey, we got to, you know, kick the tires and light the fires and get stuff going. And, oh, wait, student privacy. Oh, wait, uh, you know, COPA, FERPA, uh, the law, you know, how, how, how are we going to make sure that the tools we're using are, um, you know, compliant with the kinds of laws that we've got to uh, comply with and, and yeah, follow? So. Absolutely. 
Okay, where to next, sir? Well, let's talk a little bit about China and surveillance. Um, so I'll talk an article that I think you perhaps put one in there under privacy from CNN. So the one I'll do, uh, the first one is from the Financial Times on April the 1st and is titled China Coronavirus and Surveillance, the Messy Reality of Personal Data. And basically <clears throat> what the, what the article discusses is how now that they've, you know, lifted the shelter in place, severe restriction in Wuhan, which Wuhan, China was the source of the, of the coronavirus. Um, you know, they are in China having what I'm, what we would certainly consider to be draconian tracking practices where as everywhere you go, you know, you are being tracked and, and at least the government is trying to do that, even requiring you, I think, to scan in places when you get on a bus or you get out or you go to a, a particular building. So they want to have ubiquitous tracking of every single person, you know, in the country. And my understanding for that is because they want to be able to find out, you know, who has come in contact with someone who has COVID-19. Again, my very limited understanding, having just, you know, spent a few nights in a Holiday Inn Express and having absolutely no medical training beyond, you know, Boy Scout first aid and Air Force survival training. Um, you, you need, we need to be able to test folks who are showing the, the symptoms, but we're also going to need to know where did that person get COVID-19 ultimately, because those people who were exposed to them are going to need to be in quarantine. And so China's, uh, you know, unique ability uh, and potential at this point because they are uh, essentially a totalitarian government. I don't know. It's weird. It's like, doesn't their, their economy and their political system doesn't really fit into a neat pattern of what, you know, those of us that grew up in the eighties and nineties going to uh, high school and college would, would, you know, fit something into. But anyway, they are using what we would consider to be very um, big brotherish surveillance state technologies to track everyone. And, you know, one of the questions is going to be, and I think we had an article a few weeks ago about Israel and the ways in which, you know, they were attempting to gain much more extensive access to everybody's uh, cell phone GPS location data, you know, for that reason. What does this mean in, quote, the West, in, in countries that are not China? Are countries going to, to say, yeah, absolutely, you know, because this is a global pandemic, we've got to stop it. Security forces and medical folks are going to need to have, uh, you know, minute by minute tracking data on every single citizen, resident, you know, individual in the country. Um, that I, wow, that is really kind of unanticipated. So thoughts about that. And I think your CNN article on privacy may, may tie to it as well. Well, I mean, I, I know that privacy advocates have been uh, uh, in heightened alert in the last couple of weeks because there is so many um, potential downfalls to strategies to try to track uh, uh, those that have have, have uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the CNN article talks about this in, in some detail. It relates specifically to Google because Google has been, been publicly releasing data that's collecting uh, of people of people's movements during the pandemic, and they are doing what's called community mobility reports. You can actually go to Google.com and check out areas, including as minute as Western Montana or the larger Missoula region, as an example of this. And and they they try to make judgments about uh, where people are going and what they're doing, right? And at one point they were, I, I think people other people were using this to rank areas about who is being more more mobile than others. Uh, you know, in, in, with big data sets that don't have personally identifiable information in them, those are extraordinary large treasure troves for doing things like tracking movements of disease, tracking transportation, uh, tracking movement patterns uh, to some public benefit. But I think that the conversation that we're probably not going to have until after this is over with is what is an appropriate line between what is required or necessary for public health versus uh, protecting our, our privacy. and. Obviously, the United States is a privacy-driven nation, although uh, we have no mention directly of privacy in our Constitution. It lives in so many of the amendments of the Bill of Rights. Uh, it has been defined uh, pretty specifically through Supreme Court decisions over time, plus privacy rights that have been given by the United States Congress, that we're going to have to find a balance there. And I guess I personally, I'm not that uncomfortable with Google 
allowing large, large data sets without personal identifiable information to be able to uh, help people uh, figure out. Uh, Google, by the way, uh, was listening there. So maybe <laughs> maybe I should have said that out loud, but uh, that I'm comfortable uh, with them doing that. But I guess part of what I want to do and both Wes and I have have uh, dug into uh, quantitative research before as, as part of our doctoral studies. I kind of want to drill down and see what individual records look like, because my guess is, is I'll just use my wife and I, for example, we live at a house in a little cul-de-sac in Missoula, Montana. Um, it wouldn't be that hard if you started digging into the Missoula data or maybe if you were able to go to a location and say, show me everyone that's been here to be able to then pick out a record and then be able to track our movement. So, I, you know, that's a hard one for me because I think we're going to have to talk about that. Obviously, it's a conversation we need to have, but I personally have no advocacy of where that line is. And in fact, may if we do draw a line, it may be abused almost immediately in a different context. And the thing we have to remember about any data is once something has been digitized, it it can be hacked. So even though I think we probably want to have full confidence and faith in our government and, and other governments, you know, hacks happen and there are consequences to having things digitized. So, um, where I've been having a little back channel with Peggy, uh, and, and I put this link into both the YouTube. Well, I think I did. Maybe I just put it on Facebook. That's weird. I wanted to put it on both. Um, so let me choose all desk. Well, I'll send it to Facebook. There are uh, instructional support modules for our teachers on this uh, support.cassie.org. We're talking about Eric Kurtz, and, and Peggy mentioned the wonderful seven-part video series that he put together uh, on Google Classroom, and we've got that at the top of the page that we're using. And so anyway, if you don't follow Eric Kurtz, he is just Eric Kurtz, E-R-I-C-C-U-R-T-S. He is an Ohio educator and one of the most knowledgeable and generous Google uh, using educators. Uh, we've also got a comment coming in from Facebook. Hello, Lauren, um, saying that in uh, China, they, they have blood testing in your home. Uh, if you're negative, they enter that data into your phone. That data gets you into buildings around the city. You all get your temperature taken before you can go in as well. So I've been to China four times, once to Hong Kong and three times to the mainland. <clears throat> when we were there, I think it was the first time in 2007 in Shanghai, uh, they were, you know, using these temperature guns that when you were walking in, in public places, at, you know, kind of at intersections and stuff, and they would be shooting that at your forehead, you'd see this little laser which kind of, you know, freaked you out a little bit. Like, what is that? Um, but they were actually taking your temperature. And so they were scanning people, you know, on the street to try to identify who had fever and, you know, trying to limit access. So Lauren is giving her, her, her source that her friend's boyfriend is living there. And so isn't that crazy, man? Blood test in your home to get your, get your pass to go wander about the city. Crazy. Well, uh, Wes, where should we head to next? I see we're already near the top of the hour. I'm not sure it how that is, happened, but yeah, it's going by fast. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, um, let's see. We did zoom privacy. Um, let's talk about the, your influencers article. So that your guardian article from April 8th influencers among the key distributors of coronavirus misinformation. I've, we've talked about this. My girls, watch these folks on YouTube that I have no idea who they are and they are super popular with millions and millions of followers. Are you saying YouTube influencers can't be trusted with everything they say, Dr. Neifer? I unfortunately have to make that claim tonight. And this article is from the Guardian on today's edition of the Guardian, but they're quoting uh, research from Oxford's Reuters Institute for the study of journalism. And they found that while politicians, celebrities and other prominent public figures were responsible for, for producing or spreading 20% of false claims about the coronavirus. Their posts accounted for 69% of the total engagement. So in other words, even though they were not the majority voices uh, amongst the, you know, mass of voices in social media about something like the coronavirus, uh, nearly 70% of, of those that were actually engaged with, the so read and, and interacted with, um, uh, were from those, uh, uh, influencers. So that's something that, that we need to keep in mind. And I, I, as an example of this, I've been kind of curious a couple weeks back, I shared there's a, 
um, a Twitter list from Jeff Jarvis. He's a professor of journalism at, at CUNY New, or SUNY New York. Um, no, it'd be CUNY New York, I think. And he um, has created this list of curated sources on Twitter, kind of all of something you do a lot, Wes, with Twitter. Um, and in fact, the Twitter app does so, so such a better job of integrating lists than they used to into the master app. But um, it's a COVID-19 list and it's journalists and scientists and other experts on that. And it's, it's really interesting because if you you uh, have an expert, and I would call Mr. Jarvis an expert, at least on journalism, and have them curate a list, you get such a different view than if you're just uh, clicking on the COVID uh, link on Twitter. And I think that's something we need to be really concerned about to say that just because someone is even a politician, they may have a vested interest in one direction or the other, and it may bias what they're saying. Right. Um, I certainly don't want to dig into the mess that is the, the federal government's response to um, uh, COVID-19 right now, because I think there'll be plenty of opportunity to do that down the road as we talk about what happened or didn't happen. And I think we'll need to take an objective view of that sometime down the road. But it is true that there are members of Congress that are advocating one way or the other. There are celebrities that are advocating one way or the other. There's even uh, 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 kind of celebrity scientists and doctors that are advocating one way or the other. And I think we need to be really careful before we trust a celeb, even if they're a political celeb, over a doctor or an established researcher or someone who is an expert, per se. And this really echoes the advice we've given all along. So, Wes, I guess the question I have for you, have you recently referred to a Kardashian for COVID-19 information? I have not. And I definitely, you know, I definitely believe that helping all of us become better filters of of information, create better filters, and decide what voices we trust is an essential, you know, media literacy, just, and let's just say literacy skill today. So I, I, one of the things that I think this will encourage me perhaps to do this, uh, that we've done before, but not enough is to sit down because, so we have a 19 year old and 16 year old girls living with us. Our son is, is in Colorado. Um, and, you know, again, like what, who are they watching on YouTube? Who are the, their influencers? Uh, what, what are they saying? You know, a, a few months ago, it's, or maybe it's been longer than that, you know, one daughter had ordered, you know, some kind of, uh, of health product and food that was shipping from Australia. And it was like, wait a minute, what is that? You're going to eat this. Um, so yeah, it's important to recognize, uh, the influence that influencers have and for us to develop our media literacy skills and, and consider the source and who it is that we're going to believe. And just because somebody has a position of authority or they have, you know, millions of followers on YouTube does not mean they should be an expert on everything. I heard a critique of Carl Sagan one time at that point, because, you know, astrophysicist and super knowledgeable astronomy uh, expert, but, you know, in his famous Cosmo series and, and, you know, perhaps elsewhere. I mean, he, he ended up making some claims about some things that, you know, ventured far afield from, from astrophysics in his core domain. And so we just need to think about who we're going to, who we're going to trust. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Let's see. We got about eight minutes. We started a little bit late, so I bet we can, I bet we can go 10 more uh, minutes. Um, you want to do that article? Yeah, the FaceTime hospital. Yeah, article. so uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I've been trying to get the catchword technology correction or catchphrase technology correction um, uh, uh, to to become a thing, and and it, that was this notion, especially post uh, 2016, that we're going to kind of hit the brakes on tech and maybe reconsider where it fits into our lives. And something that I think has happened is that in the last four weeks, and by the way, it's, it's four weeks ago tomorrow that I first put myself into a self-isolation. As I've mentioned, I'm an immunosuppressed individual uh, by medication uh, that I take for my uh, transplanted kidney. And so I have four weeks now at home and there's been a lot of interesting ways that, that kind of our engagement with technology has changed. And so I wonder now, I don't think that a that the correction is going to evolve a little bit here because I suddenly also think that technology is playing an enormously important role in kind of keeping us connected with one another um, and also providing critical resources when we can't use direct face-to-face -face opportunities when they're going to do something. So two articles that I want to uh, highlight that I thought were pretty good. The first one was that um, uh, uh, a lot of places where hospital resources are um, uh, thin and also that there's risk by being in a hospital because of the transmit of the, the novel coronavirus um, when 
a woman's having a baby. It's time for labor. She goes in the hospital. There are some hospitals are saying it really just needs to be mom for now because we don't want to put the father at risk uh, uh, or the, the other spouse at risk of something. And so new parents um, instead of seeing their baby for the first time face to face, um, are literally uh, bringing phones into delivery rooms, recovery rooms, and meeting their children for the first time using FaceTime. And although there was a bit of sadness there, because having never had a kid myself, I'm imagining that meeting your child for the first time is an extraordinary thing. But how amazing is it that we can almost reproduce that important event using technology uh, to provide some safety for the other parent. And I want to make sure that when this is all said and done, that, you know, in the same way that I think we need to reconsider the ways we engage with technology post 2016, post 2020, there may be a balance here in that we can acknowledge the power of these tools without letting them take over something or losing some humanity to them. And in this particular article, what an amazing way to take a, a, a somewhat dangerous and, and sad situation and add some, some life to it, add some humanity to it, and using technology to help people connect with one another. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the one of the super sad things about the situation is that there's so many people alone in um you know, the hospital and yeah. uh, home and homebound and, and disconnected. So I think that uh, those of us that can help in terms of, you know, connections and technology, reaching out to folks, but also, I mean, we get, I got an email tonight from one of our, our faculty, you know, wanting to connect to a grandparent, you know, in uh, a nursing home who doesn't have a lot of tech skills and, you know, what tool to use and, and those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, when I was at the, I think I showed this on the show. So I had a, I had another kidney stone <clears throat> Sunday before last and I ended up in the ER and then I uh, went back the next day. And in between those two days, you know, they stopped admitting visitors at all to the, to the ER as far as their lockdown. Um, at the, the hospital, which is Mercy Hospital here in Oklahoma City, every time a baby's born, they play a little, you know, sort of angelish, angelic like music, uh, kind of like a harp or something. So you, you know that a baby's been born, but it's just so sad, like now, uh, with mom, you know, by, by herself. So technology can bring families together and help us make connections, which it can, right? There's that tremendous potential. Um, and, and, and that is, that is good and that is very positive. So. And then one other quick article that I, I read quickly and I want to dig, dig through a little bit more is the, um, the changes in the way we use the internet. This is a great article from yesterday's New York Times called the virus changed the way, the virus changed the way we internet. And, um, it, it goes through some statistics about how we are uh, engaging in the internet and something that I guess I'm, um, uh, a little surprised about is that, uh, the Facebook, Netflix, and YouTube is increasing, but not as much app-wise as it is the web, right? So people are getting on their laptops or desktop computers and they're increasing, um, their, uh, access of Facebook. They're increasing their access of Netflix. They're increasing, um, uh, their use of YouTube.com, but the apps themselves have been way more mixed and not as, as concrete in, in their increases. Facebook has been a little bouncy. Netflix uh, overall has just increased a little bit uh, on their mobile app, and YouTube has actually gone down, whereas YouTube.com overall, so you assume desktop, laptop, has gone up by 15%. Um, obviously, we are seeking new ways to connect. So Google Duo, uh, which is a, a, a one of the 1,400 different apps that Google puts out for, for uh, a video conferencing or, 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 or kind of FaceTime-like functionality, it's up 12%. Nextdoor.com, which is a, um, a, a, guess a social network for neighborhoods is the best way to put it, is up 73%. House Party's an app. It's up 80%. Uh, Zoom, obviously, uh, uh, three times, I'm sorry, twice the number of, or no, three times the number of users as before. Google Classroom is, uh, uh, up 150%. Microsoft Teams is up way more than, than that, although less ultimately than Google Classroom from a pure number standpoint. But we are changing the way we're using the internet. I've personally been really impressed that the internet has stayed relatively stable. Right. There's been some bumpiness. I know this morning there was a brief uh, funkiness with Gmail that was corrected in about 45 minutes. But other than that, tools have been really responding well. And Internet in general seems like it's doing a pretty good job of keeping up with this extraordinary time. So, Wes, I have to ask you, has there been much change in the way you engage 
with the web, like different devices, different sites, different times. No, no. Um, but I, I mean, I will say that it's remarkable to be supporting teachers in the way that we are today. And in the fact that I, I think, as I mentioned earlier with a metaphor, it's like everyone's been thrown into the deep end, you know, with regard to the creation and sharing of media and, you know, interactive tools and platforms and, and so much. So it hasn't changed, you know, the tools that I'm using, but it certainly has, you know, ramped up the, um, the, the, the needs and the, um, the desires of, of our teachers to, you know, utilize these different tools and develop new strategies. And I think that's also just a big challenge as well. You know, we've got the wellness and, and balance challenges to, uh, not being on our screens too much and not being 24 seven workers, all those things that you, you know, so presciently warned us about, you know, probably three or four weeks ago on the show as we're talking about all this. But we've also got the, the need to continue to learn and, and to, and to not be so overwhelmed with the demands that we can't, you know, just continue to kind of up our game and learn some new, new tools and some new strategies. So being able to, to do that is, is a, is a big challenge. And that's, I, I, I'm watching. Oh, I wanted to mention, by the way, and we're at the top of the hour. So we're going to have to geek of the week it. You, sir, shared a fantastic podcast with me about the supply chain that was from Planet Money, and I'm going to put that link in the show notes. Man, this is, my comment is, it's so inspiring to hear about these engineers and supply chain managers basically bringing their game, just like you'd hear about in World War II or, you know, some other time where people are like, okay, guys, we got to pull out all the stops and make ventilators. I mean, they said in that show, there's like 700 different components that are needed for this ventilator. And because General Motors, I think, unleashed their supply chain experts, you know, they were able to get all these things sourced. And so we've got this massive race that's happening right now for the United States, not not just to ramp up production of masks and not just to get a, you know, um, uh, an antidote or vaccine for COVID-19, but to produce enough ventilators, which are very sophisticated devices so that we can meet the, the, the surge in demand. Because right now we are... We, we don't know when the peak is going to be in different areas in terms of hospitalization and the number of people who are going to get sick. That's why we're trying to shelter in place. And South Korea and other countries that have let up see an additional surge happen, right? Because we don't have a vaccine in place. And so anyway, that is a, that was fascinating. So any, any thoughts you had on that Planet Money episode? And how'd you find that? Is that a regular show you listen to? Yeah. I love Planet Money because it's such a kind of it's 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 a real the real practical take on current events. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and it's got the great NPR engine behind it. But the other thing I was thinking about during that, and I I, I know that you'll remember this for sure, the scene in Apollo 13 where they're trying to get the square uh, filter to fit into the round hole uh, uh, on Apollo 13 because after the explosion happened, they had the wrong type of filters and they needed to be able to do that. And they did dramatize the scene quite a bit from my understanding of, of, of the actual thing, but they're like, okay, okay, folks, here's what we got to do. We're going to make this fit into this using nothing but that. And they sat down and just made it happen. And I thought about that ingenuity and um, the extraordinary amount of, of, of time and energy that's being put into this. And, you know, I, I know that, that New York Governor Cuomo has mentioned this a little bit. And this is probably another conversation we're going to have to have post-COVID is that we have lost a lot of manufacturing base in the United States. It's not just jobs, although jobs is a part of it. It's also our ability to make things we need in order to continue as 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 a nation, no matter what the situation is. And they were talking about this extraordinary uh, 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 kind of supply chain uh, problem that they have and being able to get all the parts in the right place to assemble something. And what that's meant, particularly in, in the state of Michigan, which is used to making cars, are now adapting, trying to make parts of ventilators. Yeah, I love that. I thought it was a really well done podcast. That is the best news produced piece. It's from March 31st on, N on NPR, uh, episode 987, The Race to Make Ventilators. We'll include that in the show notes. Kenny Malone and Karen Duffin. Just absolutely fantastic. And then just, and super inspiring, right? I mean, we are, I am turning on news very little now. I want to still be informed, but, <clears throat> you know, I don't want that tornado siren going off. 
Uh, but this was this was fantastic. So if you would like to be inspired with some current news, um, that, that's a good one. I'll do one more article and then let's geek of the week it. We'll need to wrap up. This is from uh, Kansas Public Radio. So this is NPR. Uh, and this was on April the 8th. Four in 10 teen, U.S. teens say they haven't done online learning since school closed. Talking about how, you know, the mandate to teach online and, uh, you know, deliver instruction virtually has not meant that, you know, every, of course, every student is engaging in that. I also have heard some troubling things. This is, I think, from Facebook groups that my wife is in. You know, there's some schools that have said, hey, you know, because everyone doesn't have high speed Internet and a device, we, we can't do any of that. So we're going to have to go to a, a lower lowest sort of common denominator. And I don't it'll I'd love if. if Anyway, I don't think there's probably many journalists that are listening to this would have to tweet to them or at them. But it, that would be a really fascinating thing for folks to take a look at is how many schools are, you know, from an equity standpoint saying, hey, not all my kids have high speed Internet at home. So therefore, we're not going to you know try and deliver instruction and learning in that way. I, I don't know. But anecdotally, I am reporting that that is happening in at least some schools. So we have gone beyond the hour. Dr. Neifert, would you like to share some geeks of the week to take us home? Yeah, a quick tool, uh, really great, plugs into all modern browsers. It's called Print Friendly. You go to printfriendly.com. It's a Chrome, Firefox, Edge uh, extension, which is something you plug into your browser to add a functionality. And basically what it does is that it takes a page when you're going to print something and not only takes away all the cruft, right, their ads or whatever, uh, it, it just deletes them so that it's a better print. But you can also go in and delete sections of something. And the reason why this has been critical for me is twofold. One, because um, I've been printing out a lot of recipes the last couple of weeks. My wife and I have been doing a lot of cooking at home. And um, I used this extension this afternoon because there was a great recipe for uh, cabbage rolls. I'm going to make some Russian cabbage rolls this weekend as part of our uh, uh, weekend celebrations. And uh, there was a recipe. It literally would have printed out to be 39 pages. There was so much cruft and comments on it. I got it down to one page, no ads, one page saves the environment and is much better. So printfriendly.com. Also, if you are in a position where you're trying to create paper stuff out of the internet uh, for equity purposes, this is a way that you could take a web page, for example, and take out a lot of the extra stuff if you're printing it out to be part of a paper packet to go home to a student that may not have access. So printfriendly.com. There you go. And so this is a partial shout out from last week. I mentioned uh, Walmart. I tried to order online for pickup. It was canceled. <clears throat> so our, our local super Walmart, which has definitely a better selection than the neighborhood market, you know, has for a year of unlimited delivery to your house, 98 bucks. I don't know if that's nationwide, um, but <clears throat> we had that for the first time, got groceries delivered and thought, <clears throat> what a revelation. Not only are we going to get less things because I'm notorious for, you know, buying things I didn't plan to get because I saw them in store, <clears throat> but also, you know, just not not going out. And so uh, one of the things which has been added to my, my desk collection here is the uh, Google nest hub and so we'll try my little old so that that's a, a photo of me standing below uh Edoras, uh in new in new zealand i did not go across the freezing river which would have been a little bit above my waist i think if i had waded across the glacially fed water but anyway if you're a lord of the rings fan <clears throat> when i was in new zealand i think in 2010 i had a chance to go back to the south island where i was an exchange student in 1987 and got on a fun tour to see some different lord of the rings things but this isn't about that. What I wanted to show is, hey, Google, show my agenda. There's one entry for today. You have an all-day event called email. So I just have one thing left, but I had 16 appointments today, and so uh, I'm really enjoying using Calendly to allow people to set up 15- or 30-minute appointments with me, and so I'm doing coaching as well as support you know, with parents and with others that way. Uh, but it could be kind of crazy with so many different events. And so this is really cool to be able to, you know, have my, my calendar events. And plus I'm enjoying the other features of, you know, having the, the digital picture frame there and all that good stuff. So continue to be very happy in the Google universe with tools like that. Although Dr. Neifer, I guess you still, you're still not uh, sporting the Apple watch yet. So we'll see. 
what happened. That's correct. I am not, although, uh, and those of you out there that uh, there are people that listen to this podcast that have been lobbying me, but we'll see. I'm pretty happy right now uh, in Google World. Okay, well, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here sharing your wisdom of all things remote and online learning, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Community Education. Blog.ncc.org is our blog. And I work for the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. Uh, MontanaDigitalAcademy.org. And you, sir. I want to say a shout out to Marta joining us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Always great to have you with us, Marta Live. Um, I am W Fryer on Twitter, as you've seen below on our little taglines here. <clears throat> My curriculum, and I'm now having some special remote learning curriculum for lessons, is on mdtech.cassidy.org. I am publishing a wide variety of presentations and recorded audio sessions on my anchor channel, which is called Class with Dr. Fryer. So you can ask your favorite smart speaker to play the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer, and who knows what you will get. And I also, oh, shoot, not Mel, i got to set up, try to set this up. Shoot. Okay, today's Wednesday, but we don't have school Friday. I don't know. We may not get one out, but I started a podcast series that I've wanted to actually do for a while, just kind of interviewing different members of faculty of our faculty uh, that's called Cassidy Voices, and it's also on Anchor. It's just anchor.fm slash Cassidy. So anyway, lots of different places. So we want to thank everyone for joining us. We had a great, great interaction in the chat room. That's always awesome. We want to encourage everybody to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. As Jason said at the top of the show, you can find the show notes by visiting edtechsr.com slash links. And you can find, hopefully, all of the, the resources, the articles that we mentioned in tonight's show, as well as 32 kilobit small MP3 audio files. And if you want to download the video version, 360p video versions, or you can just subscribe to us on YouTube. But all of that is on edtechsr.com. So until next Wednesday night, I encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. Stay home, everybody. Let's all be safe out there. And, uh, hey, let's keep on helping people use digital tools to do powerful and wonderful things.